Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Be damned if the same politicians who refuse to act then are going to try to come back today. The real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background and experience. And correction. Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker. I'm here with my co-pilot. Are you recording? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, no, I didn't even see you press record. Okay. <laughs> Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker. I'm here with my co-pilot, Caitlin, and it's time for She's a Woman. It's a podcast for every human being who looks into the mirror and says, She's a woman! And for the people who love them. Every week, we talk to incredible women of all kinds from all walks of life and invite them to share their stories with you, our incredible listeners. And that's exactly what we're going to do today, Caitlin. (laughs) All right, Caitlin, let's talk about the zoo because we went to the zoo for a whole six hours. We went to the Bronx Zoo. Yeah, my friend Dan, Safari Dan on Instagram, (laughs) he works with the zoo a lot And so he gave us the inside scoop on all the animals, not just the names of the species, but the names of the individual animals in the exhibits. I know. I learned so much for each animal. He had a, like, fun fact about Mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Several fun facts about them. He knows so much. Yeah. And I thought we were animal enthusiasts. This guy. I know. He was, like, like sweating. You know what I mean? I know. He was wearing, like, a tiger t-shirt. And I was like, oh, you're dressed in theme for the zoo. And he was like... I always wear these type of shirts. I was like, oh, okay. I had a great time because, yeah. uh, you know, listeners, we love any and all animals. We do. And the Bronx Zoo is an especially good one to go to because they 
are very well funded, is that right? And mm-hmm. they do a lot towards animal efforts, and a lot of the animals there were rescued from horrible situations and yeah. were maybe would have been killed otherwise. And right. I know there's lots of zoos that are problematic and just in it for entertainment, but the Bronx Zoo really cares about the animals more and, than... Yeah, and a lot of the species that are there exist only in zoos now. Mm-hmm. They're pretty much extinct in the wild, and they're part of projects that are just to keep those species alive and in some cases maybe release them into the wild again. Um, yeah, we saw a lot of baby animals. We saw a lot of and baby animals. And I was animals. like, wow, there's lots of babies here. And Safari Dan was like, that's because they have a breeding program here to try and uh, revive some of these species that are really, really endangered. Yep. So it was super interesting. Also, I found out from my mom, who texted me after seeing my Instagram story, that they have a whole show on the animal planet, the Bronx Zoo does. They do? Yeah. It's like five seasons. Animal planet, here we come. Yeah, it's called, I don't know what it's called. I think it's just called the zoo or something. (laughs) But it's about about the Bronx Zoo and um, all their efforts to save the animals. And my mom was like, I think you're at that zoo that we watch on Animal Planet. I was like, oh, "Oh, okay. So, you know. Fun fact. Fun fact. We gotta watch it. Not to be confused with Zoo, the great show in which animals fight back and take over the world, which is also available on Netflix. It is the worst show that has ever been released on television, and you have to watch the first episode because it's so dumb. Isn't that kind of like the movie Madagascar? Yes, but this is serious. (laughs) But isn't that the, the cartoon Madagascar? Don't they like start in the zoo, but then... yeah escape and then somehow end up on a plane to Madagascar. Is that... Okay. But this is like a drama? This is a drama about animals fighting back and taking over the world. This lady gets attacked by a whole bunch of cats. They're like, we've had it! Uh, It's a good one. Interesting concept. Do they talk or no? No. No talking. It's just like, yeah. Uh, It's not for kids. It's an adult drama. Well, I'm kind of curious, but also... Yeah. yeah. Concerned. (laughs) Anyway, that's a perfect lead-in to our little thing for today. I want to dive right into our interview, but first I have a little treat for you, Craitlin. Every week we do a little segment called Here's the Good News, where we share positive stories torn from the headlines. The idea is that they'll bring you, our listeners, a little hope during these difficult times, and this week our news is all about the mascot, of She's a Woman podcast. Also, I want to say that Ms. Cracker is so excited for this good news because she texted me twice this morning before noon and was like, I can't wait to talk about our good news today. <laughs> and so I'm really curious to learn about what what you've got for us. You're going to like this, <laughs> Okay. The first time I talked about this topic, it was just by chance. I ran across an interesting article in the Times and I was like, oh, cool. This makes me happy. Let's talk about it. The second time, I just wanted to follow up on the first story. By the third time that we talked about this on the podcast, I realized I was obsessed. And now I'm just admitting it. Giraffes are the mascot of this podcast this at this point. This is definitely point. like our third or fourth This is story. our fourth giraffe oh story. Oh my gosh. We, do, we love them. We, we love, love giraffes. Them, but it, it's not just giraffes, but it's what they stand for. Because news about giraffes, okay, fine. But is what it means for the animal world that really gets me. So here's the good news. For years, scientists assumed that giraffes are very simple creatures. They don't seem to socialize too much at first glance. They move slowly. They look aloof 
as the New York Times article puts it. But after careful observation recently, science is changing its mind. Now scientists believe that giraffe culture, giraffe society, may be much more complex and interconnected than we ever thought. According to the Times and stories from this groundbreaking pioneering podcast, hello, (laughs) female giraffes are now known to enjoy years-long bonds. We talked about that. They have lunch buddies, stand guard over their dead babies, and stay close with their mothers and grandmothers. Females even form shared daycare-like arrangements called creches in which they take turns babysitting and feeding each other's young. Lady giraffes. This is a a really crossover of our interests. Yeah. Um, So observations like these have reached a critical mass, said Zoe Mueller, a wildlife biologist who completed her PhD at the University of Bristol in England. Okay. (laughs) My favorite place in the world. And you did a University of Bristol podcast. I did. (laughs) She and Stephen Harris also at Bristol, recently reviewed hundreds of giraffe studies to look for broader patterns. Their analysis, published on Tuesday in the journal Mammal Review, suggests that giraffes are not loners, but socially complex creatures akin to elephants or chimpanzee. They're just a little more subtle about it. So here's why I think this is important. Conservation practices today allow hunters to hunt older giraffes because it's assumed that they're not important to giraffe life, that you can just kill grandma giraffes. Not the grandmas. Yeah, but studies like these are showing that giraffe grandparents may be just as important as parents, which means that those hunting practices could and should be changed. And giraffe feminism also in there. Without the older giraffes, then... Younger giraffes don't have anything to learn from. Mm-hmm. They teach each other, right? That's right. And I guess grandparenting is just as important as parenting in yeah. giraffe life. So, I don't know. I think this is good news because it shows that there are scientists out there fighting for animal rights just by teaching us the basics about them because there's so much we don't know. I know, and we've definitely talked about this before, but there is just... There is so... Many things we don't know about animals, and we just always assume that their brains are totally different than ours. Mm-hmm. And in some ways they are, but in a lot of ways they are just like us. Yeah, and we come from that. We, yeah. we were animals, we are animals, so we have so much in common. And assuming that, I don't know, assuming that any part of an ecosystem or a herd is not important is, is like, ridiculous. It all works together yeah. that way for a reason. Yeah. yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is our good news today. And it shows that ageism exists in all... In all yeah. aspects of yeah. anything that humans look at, they're oh, ageist. Yeah. Gosh. Anyway. Um, but, yeah, lady giraffes. Notice that, that this is- article says, according to the Times, female giraffes do all of these things. Yeah. And male so, giraffes yeah. just hit each other with their heads. that's why it's a perfect story for our podcast exactly lady giraffes if you're listening we appreciate you (laughs) (laughs) all right enough about that let's take a little break this episode is brought to you by snapple Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Okay, we're back. Now, before we continue, let me say this. 
If you enjoy your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews right at the end of the show. And now, Caitlin, my dear friend Ben, mm-hmm. who's living in Mexico, he wrote a review he did? of the podcast, and we I think we should read it after this. Maybe we'll read that at the end of this okay. episode. But he, he, he left high praise on our, on our podcast. Okay, good, because he's very smart. He's and, a smart guy, yeah. and so I'm like, okay, good, he likes it. And yeah. that just goes to show, if you are friends with us, and you assume that we don't need to hear from you because you told us in person... We love hearing it on the yes, on the podcast please. app. Yeah, we need praises from all mediums. From all mediums, yeah. And mom, it's time. Yeah, you yeah. and <laughs> you and, and Sylvia, you guys get on there and rate and review. Foster, Foster, we expect. I you know, <laughs> we expect it. You are in marketing. You know. <laughs> anyway, it's time for the meat of the episode. Everybody, it's time for our interview, and Caitlin. I was researching Maysoon Zayed, who is our guest today, and I was just blown away by how perfect she is for this podcast. How did you discover her? Do you remember? Was it an Insta- like late-night Instagram scroll? <laughs> I think it was a late-night Instagram scroll. Or I think, I don't know, sometimes I go on these, like, in these rabbit holes of, I decide I want to learn more about a random topic. Yeah. I think I was just trying to think of how to expand the type of guests we have on podcasts, yeah. and I think that there's so many arguments going on out there and about how the world needs to pay more attention to some of the uh, disability laws and right. things out there, and I think I just went on a rabbit hole on that yeah. like, topic one night and found her and thought she would be a great fit. Well, she's gorgeous, she's hilarious, mm-hmm. she's a woman. Let's dive in. Yeah. Maysoon Zayed is an actress, comedian, writer, and disability advocate. She is a graduate of Arizona State University and a Princeton Fellow. Maysoon is the co-founder, co-executive producer of the New York Arab American Comedy Festival and the Muslim Funny Fest. She was a full-time on-air contributor to Countdown with Keith Olbermann and a columnist for The Daily Beast. She has most recently appeared on Oprah Winfrey Network's in Deep Shift, 60 Minutes, and ABC News. Maysoon had the most viewed TED Talk of 2014, which discusses her experience of cerebral palsy, her life, her family, and so much more. Um, so, Maysoon, I have spent the last day diving into all of your incredible uh, comedy and your features on Countdown and interviews with... Queen Latifah, and <laughs> I just, I can't, you're so magnetic, and I just want to ask you the three questions I always ask to start. Where are you? How are you? What are you doing? I'm in Jersey, in my basement, where I've been pretty much since the pandemic started. I went from uh, touring and doing 200 stand-up shows a year globally to doing like 500 virtual shows a year in my basement. And I'm very much looking forward to getting back to live events. So if you people could get vaccinated, that would really, really help me. How am I doing? Um, huh. <laughs> 
I'm, that's a good I'm one, blessed. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How am I doing is good. I'm blessed and privileged because I have a very cool cat and I am alive and a lot of people are not alive and I don't live in an active war zone. So that's also um, kind of fun. I'm bored out of my mind. I definitely want to go back on tour and I'm, I'm at a very, very weird place right now because I'm on the edge of almost. So I have a comic book series coming out with Scholastic. I'm pitching a docu-series to major networks this week. And I have a Muslim Christmas movie coming out in the next Christmas season, not this one. But nothing is happening right now. So like <laughs> I feel kind of like... Is any of this real? Because everything is really hypothetical. So I'm kind of feeling bored and ungrounded, yet blessed and grateful. Wait, I have to ask, do you get imposter syndrome when no. you're in periods like oh, that? Oh, gosh, no. No, no, no. I don't have imposter syndrome. I have, I'm bitter that I'm not a cisgendered, able-bodied, straight white man syndrome. Because I know that if I was, I would be hosting The Late Show. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. I'm the- the opposite of an imposter i'm like i'm so much better than you people know <laughs> oh wow i love that and the third question is what are you doing right now and i think you're sitting in your basement losing your mind <laughs> i'm sitting in my basement losing my mind um i'm writing the final draft of my comic book for scholastic that i'm super excited about because it centers a disabled child of color who does not get healed in the fantasy world. So like too often when we see visible disability, like a wheelchair user, an amputee, or someone who's blind, when they become a superhero or they're in the dream world, they're healed. But this character is not because I wanted to show that like disability is cool. You don't have to be healed. You can still live in a fantasy world and be gimpy. And this week, literally this week, I'm meeting with the five biggest networks in the world to pitch a docu-series called Welcome to the Disco that I'm partnering with the director of the documentary that was nominated for an Oscar called Crip Camp. And she and I partnered and we're doing something like, it's like Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations, but instead of eating food, we eat disabled people. And I've been watching a lot of TV. So like last night I watched the season finale of The Bachelorette and uh, that was fun. (laughs) Well, I was going to ask you, and you're kind of answering it a little bit, like, just to be clear with our audience, you're a hilarious comedian, and you turn all of life's challenges into laughter. And I'm kind of wondering, were you able to use comedy to help you survive during the pandemic? Or was it just boredom that took over? No, yeah, comedy definitely helped me survive the pandemic, because it was all stranger than fiction. And comedy is like taking the ridiculous and making it even more ridiculous. So I've loved having the opportunity to reinvent myself as a virtual comic. You know, those first, the first three months I was like, oh my God, my entire livelihood disappeared. And like, I'm a spoiled brat. I'm a mean girl that like masquerades as an empathetic, like advocate for the underdog. But like internally, I'm a mean girl and I like stuff. And like in one phone call, all of my finances were gone. All of my income was gone. All of my shows were canceled. And I had no idea what I was going to do. And I had spent 20 years on the road. So it was really fun to be able to like, okay, I'm going to sit in front of a camera. I'm not going to hear my audience. 
and I'm going to do this. And I recreated myself as a virtual speaker in a virtual comic. And then all the time that I wasn't flying gave me the opportunity to write these incredible, incredible projects I miraculously managed to sell that I don't think I would have sold if there wasn't a pandemic. Because normally you have to fly to LA for all these meetings. I live in Jersey and that costs money. And like, I didn't have it. But since I could have my meetings in the basement, I was able to sell three projects in one year. So it was really exciting and fun and a huge, huge challenge. But also I want to catch up your audience. So for the people in your audience who don't know me, in the oppression Olympics, I'd win a gold medal. So I'm Palestinian, I'm Muslim, I'm a woman of color, I'm divorced, I'm disabled, I live in Jersey. So like... You can't be more oppressed than me. <laughs> you won. You won this I podcast win. just now. If I meet a transgender person that's the exact same criteria as me, I'm going to have to cage fight them to the death because <laughs> I can't have anyone be more oppressed than me. Yes. No, it's, it's, it's actually a joke and it's not true because obviously like black women who are disabled are more oppressed than I am. Ugly women who are disabled are more oppressed than I am. I look like the lost Kardashian. That gets me through a lot of doors. My disability is shaking. That's kind of sexy, you know? So I'm not really at the bottom of the barrel. You have made a lifetime of being unapologetic and turning these challenges into comedy. And I think that... We, we flinch so much from these topics, all of the challenges that you face and all of the ways that you're different. And you use comedy as sort of like, I don't know, the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down is how I always put it. I always say, like, I became a comic one year after 9-11. I was a Palestinian Muslim living in Jersey, went from being like your average snooky type of Jersey girl to like public enemy number one, who was literally having like people boycott outside of my shows saying I was coming to impose Sharia law and calling me a terrorist and whatnot. And I realized that like I I didn't want to use comedy ever to like lecture or teach or preach. It was always like make them laugh first. But in that moment, I realized if I can make people laugh, then they're less likely to kill me. They may still do it, but they're less likely. And I realized that like the best way to talk about stuff, and I don't like the word humanize. When people are like, we have to humanize. You don't got to humanize me. I'm clearly a human. Like I'm not here to humanize myself. But I think the best way to talk about people, to talk to people about stuff they simply don't want to hear about is through comedy. And I think that right now in this nation, I find it terrifying that there's like an entire cult of people that have no sense of humor. So like you try to joke with them about stuff and they're just like, you know, screaming like hate and bigotry and violence. And I've I've never in 20 years of doing stand-up comedy, never have I seen such a virulent lack of ability to listen, laugh and laugh, never. And like, as I said, like, I hang out in war zones. I've been shot at a checkpoint and I've still gotten soldiers to like chuckle as they put their, you know, gun to my head. Whereas right now I try to talk to people and nothing is funny to them. It's very scary. 
can you talk about that for a second as far as where do you think that is coming from? I feel like it's too simple to say what I'm about to say, but they seem utterly disconnected to reality. So blinded with hate and rage and privilege that they truly can't hear anything that goes against what makes them feel superior. Not wanting to give up power and to laugh is to give up a little of your power. Exactly. It's vulnerable. It's human. It's connecting with someone you don't want to connect with. Because if you see me as an equal, then that destroys your entire being because their entire being is hinged on I'm better than you. You're inferior. You don't deserve equality. You're a threat to me. And we're like, you're physically a threat to me, dude. <laughs> like, right. stop being afraid of me imposing Shakira law as you step on my neck. You know, is, this is, I experienced this in a much smaller way because I am a cis white male once all the makeup and hair comes off. But when I see people, I'm like five foot five, I'm walking down the street in drag and people are losing their minds losing uh, their minds like screaming and and yelling at me as if i'm a threat and i'm like most of these people are like a foot taller than me <laughs> so i'm just like i really I'm, i promise i'm not scary especially in flats you know what i mean <laughs> and since you asked me what do you think that visceral reaction to you is the fact that you refuse to just fit into the box, like what is their reaction to you? I have another one after you tell me mine that I can't wait to tell you about. You're going to enjoy this one. In my life, I've found that I automatically have a knee-jerk hate to things that I have in common with. Like when I had really bad acne as a kid, I just hated people that had bad acne. Mm. And so I have to imagine that people that scream at me and hate me because it's not everybody have something in common with me that they don't like. And so maybe they want to do what I'm doing, or maybe they think I represent something that they're interested in and it's upsetting. So like I have tried to grow out of that knee jerk thing in in my life. And, you know, I think other people could too. What's your, what what were you going to say? So the other thing is that like, the 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 clear haters they're really easy the ones that are a real challenge for me are the people who fancy themselves as progressive as allies as equality junkies and then i go into their high-powered hollywood meeting and i watch women women specifically which makes me sad because you know we're supposed to uplift each other in the meetings react so negatively to me And I know exactly what it is. Again, there's a huge amount of privilege, right? And it's very scary for them to see a disabled woman of color who is more confident and more powerful than they are and doesn't flinch or bow to all the pressure around her. So like when I go into meetings, I don't let men speak first. I make jokes if there's a lack of diversity. I'm like, which one of these is not like the other. And I think (laughs) they fought so hard to get in their position that when I walk in completely irreverent and I don't follow any of the rules, it makes them feel bad because they're like, how is the disabled brown chick more confident than I am? That's not how it's supposed to be. And they're gatekeepers. These are the gatekeepers. 
And I think I have to think that a lot of of your attitude comes from the way that you grew up and the fact that you had a family that absolutely would not take no for an answer when it came to giving you the best life. So before we go on and talk about all of the things that you are working towards, I just want to rewind for a moment and ask about your deep past, what you were like growing up and the moments (laughs) that that made you because I think this is I think it's a a, your family is a, a beautiful story. So I say that my dad was a teddy bear and my mom was a tyrant and they perfectly prepared me for my life in Hollywood. So my dad was like, the, you know, yeah, my dad was the ultimate cheerleader. When I was born, the doctors who delivered me said I was would never walk. Now, there's absolutely no shame in not walking or using like whatever mobility device you feel frees you. But like at the time I was born, the ADA wasn't signed. There weren't a lot of options. And so my dad was like determined to teach me how to walk. And he taught me how to walk by dangling a dollar bill in front of me and having me chase it. I mean, think about that. Like there was something so visceral about like childhood. Me was like, my inner stripper is so strong. I'm going to do this. But then like (laughs) he was... He was the guy with like the giant video recorder on his shoulder at um, dance recitals while my mom went back to college. So my mom had four kids by the age of 26, four girls, and then went to college and became chief of lab of the largest like medical center in New Jersey, Jersey City Medical Center. So I really only recognized her from pictures, but she was uh, failure was not an option. So like you didn't get to come home with B's, you came home with A's. There was no playing the disability card. Like my sisters each had chores and I was like, I can't clean. I'm disabled. She put a towel under my butt and put me on the kitchen floor and was like scrub. She's like, you can go, you can do this, you know, and, and like, to this day, I always tell this joke, but it's completely true. I was on 60 minutes and I called my mom and I was like, did you see me on 60 minutes? And she was like, yes, your hair looked terrible. And I don't resent her for it. Cause guess what? She was right. My hair did look terrible. The next time I did better and I looked very Beyonce. So like, I don't think of it as a bad thing that my mother constantly challenged me, never gave me breaks because I was disabled. And when I say never gave me breaks because I was disabled, she wasn't like, you shall become a cardiac surgeon. I don't care if you kill them. It wasn't like that. It was just kind of like, no, you're not going to you know, skip college and go straight to Broadway. You're going to go to college, waste money on a degree that teaches you nothing about entertainment, and then come back four years later and too much older to really audition. And that's what I did. And it worked out perfectly, you know, so... That's who I came from. And then I had three older sisters. So I was born in a Palestinian Muslim family with no brothers. So the four women were treated completely equally. And my dad was like a huge girl dad. And he was like, my girls are going to college and my girls will pick who they want to marry. And we didn't like live under this like picture of Muslims that Americans have where you're like covered in a burqa and forced to get married at eight years old. And so they raised us super, super proud of who we were and super strong women. And so I think that's an integral part of me. 
Part number two, super important. Parents were too poor to afford physical therapy and occupational therapy. So they sent me to tap class and piano. Now, to be clear, my parents were upper middle class. But before 1993, people with pre-existing conditions couldn't get insurance. And nobody can afford physical therapy and or occupational therapy without insurance. Like you can maybe get six weeks. But up until 1993, we weren't allowed to have insurance. And that's why every time they try and overthrow the ACA, the disabled community gets really, really nervous because we could be back to being uninsurable in a heartbeat. So instead, they sent me a tap class and to piano, piano for my hands, tap for my body. And so I was a performer from the age of five. And I was getting standing ovations every single show. And I had no freaking idea that people were standing for me because I was disabled, because social media didn't exist. So if social media existed, a clip of me Dancing on point to Bette Midler's Wind Beneath My Wings would go viral with some hideous headline like disabled girl conquers everything to shakily spread her wings. And I would have been horrified, realized that people only clapped for me because I was disabled and not talented. And I would have quit. But luckily, I didn't have any of that. So I loved the stage. I loved TV, and I always wanted to be an entertainer. Um, so that's another part of the D part of me. And then the equality part. The reason that I'm like so obsessed with equality is that while all my friends were going to Jersey Shore, my parents sent us to Palestine to live in a war zone. So I grew up watching people being discriminated against simply because they were born the wrong faith. So like, in house A, you're born one religion, you get everything. House B, you're born another religion, you get nothing. And I I just couldn't wrap my brain around the fact that people were separating each other based on skin, on gender, on who you love, on religion. Like, it just never made sense to me. And that's why I've fought so, so hard for disability rights, which have just been lost in the shuffle of the civil rights movement. And disability intersects with every community. So disability rights also tackle racism. They tackle reproductive rights, equal pay, healthcare, you know, women's rights. It all intersects with disability rights. And that's really what fueled my passion um, to be a disability rights advocate. You mentioned in one of your interviews that you didn't experience bullying either for your identity as a Palestinian or as someone living with cerebral palsy when you were younger. It wasn't until you encountered social media that you that you really got to f- set, experience that. Yeah. I was never bullied. I was never made fun of. I grew up in a completely Italian Catholic town. The only house that Santa skipped every year was mine. I should have been mercilessly, mercilessly bullied. I was never, ever bullied. I was never made fun of. Then I become a comic. When you're a comic, people heckle you. But it's not bullying. You know, it's like, oh, thank you. You know, like, it's not like personal. So 10 years into my comedy career, I get my big break and I get cast on, not cast, but I get invited to be a contributor on Countdown with Keith Oberman, highest ranked primetime show um, in cable news at the time. And 
I went on and right after I went on, I Googled myself because that's what you do when you're on TV and people were calling me an honor killing gone wrong. They were calling me a crooked Gumby mouth terrorist whore. They said that I looked like Botox gone bad. They said they wanted to rip my lips off my face because they were so annoying to watch. They said like the most vile disgusting things. And the next time I was invited, I literally like stopped for a second. And I was like, do I want to go back on TV and have the World Wide web make fun of me? And I was like, fuck yeah, of course I do. I'm not going to throw away 20 years of work because, you know, Benny in mommy's basement, by the way, now that I live in a basement, I feel like it's karma for me always making fun of the basement dwellers. Poor but I'm going to let some dude that's never seen me and says I have chunky knees stop me from like pursuing my dream of taking Megan McCain's seat on The View. Like, yeah. you cannot let strangers control you. It is much harder when the person bullying you is your family or your spouse And it's someone who's harder to get away from. But I see a lot of people letting people online tear them down, destroy them, affect them, affect their mental health. And all I can say is like the block button is your friend. You don't owe anybody anything. Strangers do not get to define you. Only you get to define you. Real life issues, I understand, are much harder to battle. But when you're being trolled and harassed and threatened online, block, 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 and then Google cats on glass tables, clear your, you know, clear your mind and go back to being you and having fun. You can't let them win. I I need to hear that because I will, uh, I look at the comments sometimes, you know, everyone goes like, well, don't look at them. And I'm like. I'll go for a month without looking, and then you just have that one day where you're like, I'll have a peek, and then you dive, and then you spiral. So, yeah, no, I think you're you're right, and I'll take Megan McCain's spot as well. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just talk quickly about Megan McCain's spot. Everybody's like, it has to go to a conservative. It has to go to a conservative. Like, the only other view in the world is a conservative view. Like, if you're looking for a different opinion, are you telling me that anyone's ever heard a visibly disabled woman's opinion on The View? It's never happened. You know how many times Meghan McCain said, like, the most obscene, awful, racist things about Muslims? A lot. It would be really fun to have a co-host go on and be able to counter all of that. You know what I mean? But I really wish this country would stop thinking that hate is a valid opinion. And then it's like the opposing opinion to people who want equality. I have nothing in common with Joy Behar, Whoopi Goldberg or Sarah Haynes. Nothing. Like nothing at all. No opinion they've ever given matches my opinion. But my opinion isn't given the weight of the Ku Klux Klan. Why is that? Speaking of giving hatred a voice, you have tried to give a voice to people who get a lot of hate. And part of that effort has been the New York Arab American Comedy Fest. Can you talk a little bit about how it started and what your goals were? First thing is first. I started the New York American Comedy Festival 18 years ago, one year into my career. And if I knew what I knew now, it would have such a shorter name. It could have just been Arab Comedy Fest. What 
the hell was I yeah. thinking? New York Arab American Comedy Festival. It's like 97 words and 18 vowels. So if I could do <laughs> it all over again, it would just be Arab Comedy Fest. At my third comedy show ever, I met this comedian named Dean Obidala. And as soon as he walked in, I knew he was Arab. I was like, that dude's Arab. And there were no like other Arabs in the game. So I went up to him, I introduced myself. A year later, he reached out to me post 9-11. And he was like, do you want to do a show with the Arab comics? And I was like, I think that's just me and you. And he's like, yeah, I found like three other guys on the street. They'll join us. Let's do this. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so we did an Arab comedy show and it sold out. It sold out the New York Comedy Club. So now think about this. I'm a new comic. I'm looking for like a sellout show. And I'm like, ooh, this Arab comedy thing works. So Dean and I are like, why don't we start a festival? Why don't we start a festival and we can have sketch and film and stand up and we'll gather all this Arab talent and we will redefine Arab talent in Hollywood. Because post 9-11, we were either taxi drivers, terrorists, belly dancers, or wearing a burqa. But prior to that, we were like the gods of comedy. You had Jamie Farr on MASH, Kathy Najimy and Hocus Pocus, Danny Thomas, Make Room for Daddy, like Tony Shalhoub. We were the OGs yeah. of comedy. We wanted to show Hollywood that we had the talent, but we also wanted to kind of fight against the negative representation of Arabs and Muslims in media by reminding everybody that we were American. And that's really the reason that the name was so long, because it was super important for us to establish that Arabs were not others, that Muslims shouldn't be sent back to their country, that it wasn't okay that George Bush was registering Muslims post 9-11 while pretending to be like non-bigoted and visit a mosque. You know, we were yeah. we were all under surveillance from 2002. I'm a stand-up comic, so I'm always talking to my FBI agent. Like, I'll be on the phone and I'll be like, how funny is this? Like, you're listening to me dictate an entire memoir. Like, are you laughing? Do you go back to your friends and be like, I have the best gig. Maysoon is the best person to spy on. Why doesn't the guy from the BBC love her? She likes him so much. Why doesn't he love her? So it was what everything in my life is. It wasn't all pure motive. Part of it was like, I found a racket. I found something that no one else was doing that sold out. There was a big Arab audience because they breed like bunnies and they were feeling really sad with the run up to the Iraq war. So we had a good audience. And then by 2010, we really transitioned into having like a global and national audience. When we started doing our Live Nation tours, it was no longer just Arabs coming to see us. That's when the audiences really got diverse. And then in 2011, I did a tour called The Muslims Are Coming. And I was just about to, the, to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me and Dean went to the Deep South and we did shows in communities that had like peed on Qurans and put like bacon on Muslim people's cars because they think like bacon is our kryptonite. And there was a documentary about that, correct? The Muslims are coming. Yeah. What was that experience like documenting that journey through the South? It was the most poorly planned trip 
of my entire fucking life. So Nagin Farzad, who was the producer, she planned it for August in the deep south. Okay, do you know how hot it is? <laughs> yes, in, I like, do. Alabama, Tupelo, Mississippi. But wait, there's more. It was Ramadan. So I was fasting every day until eight o'clock. Then the shows would be at eight o'clock. So I basically like break my fast on water and then we'd be in bars and there'd be no food. And they'd be like, do you want a shot of whiskey? I'm like, yeah, I want to break my Muslim fast with a shot of whiskey, Daniel. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, And then on on like the 11th, I'll never forget it. On like the 11th day of the tour, this is a totally true story. We were at Elvis's birthplace in Tupelo, Mississippi. And I passed by a statue of Elvis and he talked to me and he said, if you don't drink water right now, you're going to drop dead. And I broke my fast and I drank water and like the whole rest of the tour, I was drinking water. Anyway, one of my favorite stories was Every night after the shows, I would try to go eat and there was never food because everything would close at like 10 o'clock because, again, it's the deep south. We know that we tour, too, and we feel your pain. Continue. Like now I take Lunchables wherever I go with me on tour. I just have a stack of like pizza Lunchables, so I always have food. So anyway, we were like packing up and I was like, I was like, move, move, move. I'm like, the last place that's open closes at nine and it's like 8.45. And she's like, why don't you just go to 7-Eleven and get a bagel? And I go, because I can't eat a bagel and then fast for a whole nother day. Like, that's not how it works. And she goes, nobody told you to fast, Maysoon. And I said, nobody told you to make a movie about Muslims during Ramadan in the Deep South in August. <laughs> and then and then like Dean Dean kind of walked me away quietly. Then and I'll never forget it. He literally walked me away quietly, sat me down with a cup of iced tea and a chicken wing. And I was just like, I'm so hungry. It was such a nightmare. And Harry Smith was with us. And I was like sweating. And in Alabama, there's these bugs that attach to your legs and they have a racist name. And I kept asking people, what are those? And they were telling me what they were. And I was like, what are you saying? And you have to pluck them off of your legs. But the best, like most enlightening part of that trip that stuck with me for absolutely ever was that Alabama was still segregated. So one night Dean and I walked out to go get food and we literally ended up outside of one restaurant where every single patron was white. And it wasn't like a fondue place, like where it's logical that they'd be white. It was just like two Italian places next door to each other. One was totally white one was totally black. I was like, get your brown yeah. ass and the black one quickly. And like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, Obama is president and the South is 100% still segregated here. So you're saying that uh, diversity in uh, government and in film and television doesn't mean there's been a like tectonic shift in Cosmic America? shift? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how many what I know is that 74 million people voted for the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan in November. So that's what I know. That's what I know. (laughs) Wait, okay, so I, I, 
we just talked about representation a, a little bit, and that reminds me, you had an experience, or you talked about an experience where you were auditioning for a part in college. <laughs> this is a great story. So, t- so tell it. You'll tell it better than me. Okay, okay, okay. So since I was five years old, my dream in life was to be on General Hospital. I pursued that dream by going to Arizona State University. And I got A's in all of my acting classes, but I didn't get cast in shit. Like, I couldn't even play, like, diner number three. I didn't know what was going on. Senior year, they decided to do a show called And They Dance Real Slow in Jackson. It's about a girl with cerebral palsy. I'm a girl with cerebral palsy. So I'm like, yeah, free at last. I'm finally going to get a part. I don't get the part. Sherry Brown gets the part. I never even change her name in these stories. She's lovely. She reached out to me on Facebook and and I feel bad for her. But at the time, I did. Anyway, she was um, a non-palsy Christian scientist and she got the job. And so I went to the head of the theater department and dude, I was so dramatic. This is a totally true story. My dormitory was adjacent to the theater building and you could climb from the balcony of my dormitory into the second floor of the theater building where the offices were. And I did that day, which I totally shouldn't have because I'm palsy and I could have cracked my skull open, but I wanted to make a dramatic entrance to prove that I should have gotten this part. And so I go to her office. I'll never forget this. I go to her office. Her name was Jean Thompson. And I said, can you explain to me how I didn't get a part? I was literally born to play. And she said, you can't do the stunts. And I said, if I can't do the stunts, neither can the fucking character. And she told me to get out of her office before she kicked me out of the program. (laughs) (laughs) So then my fellow theater students like formed like a full on protest and the school got like nervous that it was going to get like sued or something for discrimination. So they put me in an, in the next show, which like wasn't even supposed to happen. They like made it happen to kind of cover their butts. And I played Frida Kahlo and I was so dedicated. I grew in my eyebrow. So my senior year in college, my first year that I could go to clubs, I walked around with a freaking burp brow from Sesame Street. Yes, you have burp brow. That's... I was born with one of those. <laughs> I was like, I don't need no makeup. I'm Arab. And so then when I went out to audition in the real world, I realized that college again had really prepped me well for Hollywood because Hollywood doesn't cast disabled people in roles that are written disabled. They cast stars. They don't ever consider us for roles that are not written as disabled. So where I did see myself was in stand-up comedy, very specifically Richard Pryor, the original shaking comic of color. And that's when I was like, I'll become a comic and then I'll do movies with Gene Wilder and the rest will be history. And, and here I am. And 20 years later, I got on General Hospital. I played Zara Amir as a lawyer, a family court lawyer. Yes. Dream achieved. What can our listeners do? What can we do to support disabled people playing disabled roles on the stage, on the screen? First and foremost, you boycott any movie or TV show that has a non-disabled person playing visibly disabled on screen. Just like we got Scarlett Johansson, you know, to pull out of tug and rub, we need to not be okay with Brian Cranston playing a paraplegic or The Rock being an amputee or Freddie Highmore doing whatever atrocity he's doing on The Good Doctor. Boycott vocally 
anything that casts non-disabled um, people and visibly disabled roles. And outside of media, follow disabled talent on Twitter. There's a hashtag disability Twitter, there's film dis, and there's the disco. Disco is short for disability community, disco. If you follow those hashtags, you're gonna see amazing actors, writers, dancers, musicians. And if you are creating things, reach out to disabled creators and include them. You know, yeah. people with disabilities are 26% of the population. So some disabilities are visible like mine, some are invisible. And you need to always create a space where disabled people not only participate because it's the right thing to do, but participate because there's an immense amount of talent in the community that has been ignored. So if you're a creator and you can include them, include them. If you're a viewer, support their work and boycott work that um, exploits them. And if you are Bill Gates, you've done really bad things in your life. And I think you would feel better if you gave me $100 million, the way that Jeff Bezos gave that to Van Jones, and I'll help the disabled people. Okay? Okay. That sounds like something that each and every one of our listeners can do. Um, that's really easy. You don't even have to move off your sofa. All you have to do is support disabled people in, in disabled roles. One of the things I want to ask, though, before we head out, you've been on General Hospital, which is your live stream. What is next? What's the next dream for you? I want the view. I'm not playing about the view. You're not the playing about the view. Been- no, I'm not playing about the view. In September, they're going to have like a guest host run the way that Jeopardy did before they gave it to the guy who runs Jeopardy, whatever the hell just happened with that. But in September, they're going to have a bunch of people come in and guest host. All I want is that one shot, that Hamilton one shot. Put me in for one shot. There's never been a visibly disabled co-host on television. Women with disabilities feel unsexy, unseen, we're not treated as adults, having that voice be put on the largest platform in daytime would be so empowering to so many women. But also, I really do think that, like, I'm great at panels. I've spent 20 years being a stand-up comic and a public speaker, moderating panels, doing Q&As, doing what you and I do now. And I'm curious and I'd like to learn about things. So often the co-hosts don't even read the news story that they're commenting about. I have like encyclopedic knowledge of politics, pop culture, sports. The only thing that I can't discuss is money because I have no idea like what economics are, how much a dollar is worth. I know nothing about money, but like pretty much anything else I can discuss. None of their co-hosts have ever lived in a war zone. I have lived in a war zone. I've worked in refugee camps. I've been in the Middle East while it was being bombed using U.S. armaments. I bring a view to that desk that has never, ever, ever been seen again. And then I would finally have a job that makes enough money where I could guarantee to keep myself out of assisted living. Because if this past year taught us anything, it's that disabled people in America are currently disposable. And if we don't take care of ourselves, society definitely won't. So I want that view bag so that I can make sure that I have like a nice chick named Lydia to take care of me the rest of my life. (laughs) 
All right, we're clipping that out and we are sending it in to the producers. <laughs> Because that's the one of the most impassioned speeches we have ever had on this podcast. And I, I want I, it now. I do too. I'm willing to also take the Friday only spot. Whoopi Goldberg takes off Fridays and they've had like Paula Farris and Anna Navarro. I take one day a week. I'd settle. I want to thank you so much for today. I hope our paths cross again soon and we work together someday. I hope so, too. Thank you so much. All right, Cradleina, that was our interview for today, and she is fiery. I know. It's great to hear about all these, like, obstacles she has or that she... But she doesn't think of them as obstacles. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I melt down if I oversleep for 30 minutes. And I'm like, what, what, what's yeah. my excuse? I need to calm down. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, like. yeah, she's very good at reminding you that if you are awash in privilege, you can calm down. Yeah. And uh, one of my favorite things that she says that we didn't get to talk about is that she does not want to be viewed as, quote unquote, an inspiration. You know, mm-hmm. she doesn't want you to look at her and be like, Look at you, like, great job. Like, she doesn't want that from people. She wants to get the credit for what she does and all that she achieves. And she doesn't want, and she specifically says, I don't want your pity. Mm -hmm. You know, just give Mm -hmm. me what I deserve, which is uh, apparently a spot on The View. Uh, Exactly. Yeah. And and I found her thoughts on social media and how... uh, Oh, she's not here for it. Yeah, how she wasn't bullied before social media came around. Yeah. I thought that was super interesting. So if you really like this interview, I would suggest going in on YouTube and looking at Maysoon Zayed because she has great TED Talks. She has great interviews. Mm -hmm. She's really fantastic to watch. So... Um, I'm very glad we had her on today and can't wait to support her more. However, having said that, Cradleina, mm-hmm. it's time for us to take a little break. Oh. Okay, we're back. Now, first of all, I want to say this again. If you liked your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews right here at the end of the show. Caitlin, do you have a review today? I do. Okay, that's the one. That's the one? Okay. (laughs) You need this podcast in your life. I listen to all my podcasts at two times speed because who has time these days? But I listen to She's a Woman at normal speed because I want to enjoy every second fully. Extraordinary woman, moving stories, excellent interviewer. Oh, Shabam! (laughs) That's my friend Ben, everybody. Thank you, Ben, so much. That makes me so happy. Also, you are a nerd for listening to your podcast at two times speed. I know. Who has enough brain power to understand at that speed? I have tried that before and I'm always like, what's going on? I need to, I feel like I can't actually listen to this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For sure. (laughs) But thank you so much, Ben, and all our friends and family. Make sure that you follow his great example and send in a little review. But enough about that. It's time for the credits. Your favorite part. My favorite part. <laughs> this podcast was... Pe- <laughs> you having trouble today? I am. This podcast was... Pre- I'm not even like... There's no reason. Like, did you get some sleep last night? I got sleep. sleep. I, you know, yeah. I'm not hungover. Uh, anyway. Did you have, like, a nice breakfast? I didn't have a nice breakfast. Oh, see? That's the most yeah, important meal yeah, of the day. Yeah, it is. <laughs> 
This podcast was produced by Caitlin Gretham, and then I did it. The cast includes me and also Caitlin, and it is distributed by the amazing Studio 71. So thank you for joining us today. Make sure to tune in next Monday for another exciting episode. And remember, if you ever feel down, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say, She's a woman! And I'll be with you. I almost forgot. You almost forgot, but I I waited. I I, I was like, oh yeah, it's my time. It's my time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) 